Hey there, Fast Talk listeners. This is your host, Chris Case, joined as always by Coach Connor. We're here today to welcome you to the newest Fast Lab show, Off Course, hosted by our good friend and expert coach, Grant Holicky. And Chris, this is a particularly special episode because it stars the oh. lovely and talent. Oh, wait a minute, it's just you. Ah, uh, it's just me. No, I think. If I do say so myself, it is actually a pretty good conversation between the two of us. We've known each other for years. It comes off that we're good friends. I think you'll actually learn some things about the two of us in the show. So yeah, it's great. Other guests that are going to be on Off Course are going to be bigger names, including Meredith Miller, Max Chance, Lance Haydet, Emerson Arante, and many others. We will be uploading a few of the first episodes of Off Course on this Fast Talk channel. But please go to fastlabs.com slash offcourse to find the show or just search Off Course on your favorite podcast app to subscribe to the show. And with that, please enjoy Off Course with your host, Grant Holicky. Welcome to Off Course, the podcast about what happens when the racing's over and life begins. Hey, this is Grant Holicky. Welcome to my podcast, Off Course. Part of what I love about all the sports that I coach and participate in is the community of fun, interesting people that I get to do it all with. In this show, you get to come along with me and my guests as we talk about every aspect of their sport, from the training and racing to their background and home life. You'll get to hear about what makes these people tick and how they maintain their excellence in sport and balance in life. I'm Grant Holicky, your host, and this is episode one. This week, my guest is Chris Case. Chris Case is a good friend of mine. We've raced together for many, many years. Our families are good friends. Chris is the co-host of Fast Talk with Trevor Connor. He's the co-author of The Haywire Heart with Leonard Zinn and John Mandrola. And he's the former managing editor of Vela News Magazine. In other words, Chris is a big deal. This week, we're going to talk about a couple things. We're going to talk about what the vision was of Fast Labs and, and how that got started. We're going to talk a little bit of the different ways to train but a lot of how we keep it fun and what the goals are to keep training and racing fun. Hey everybody, welcome to Off Course with Grant Holicky, a podcast about the other side of sports, so to speak. Uh, we're here this week with my boss, Chris Case. Oh yes, I yeah. am your boss. He is my boss. Respect. <laughs> I, I demand respect today. I, I have little or none for you, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Actually, I have an immense amount of respect for Chris. Tell me more. Uh, well, you know, it mostly starts with the fact that I think I'm a decent bike racer until I line up and race against you. You start from the back and I start from the front. Now here I am in the front. I'm like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm doing really well today. And then Chris goes rolling by, slaps me on the ass. Come on, get it going. As and, you do. And I, uh, when you see something like that, you got to smack it. But uh, in all seriousness, yes. Chris and I have known each other for a long time. We raced together mm -hmm. on the e ball team, which has now become the Blue Stages team. Uh, he's been a big part of that. Families are very close. Our, yeah. uh, his daughter, my sons now, my yeah. sons. My daughter has a crush on one of your sons so far. <laughs> we'll see if it turns into two crushes i wanted to kind of talk to you about first things first what what got me here yeah which is fast talk yeah tell me a little bit about how it came about and what's your goal what are you guys trying to do yeah that's a very good question and interestingly somewhat sadly i was not trevor's first choice as a co-host let's be honest here i can see that <laughs> <laughs> so Trevor, to keep the story short, Trevor was the coach of the CSU, Colorado State University cycling team. He was a graduate student there. He was the coach. Um, and he uh, befriended Kaylee Fretz, who used to work for VeloNews. And that was the original partnership for Fast Talk. But Kaylee then left and uh, I was the natural choice that Trevor turned to to, to fill that hole. I don't want to speak for anybody, but I think that the way that Trevor and I work together, both of our minds have a bit of a scientific persuasion, I guess you could say. And so we think alike in our philosophy about racing and training is generally similar. So our partnership has been a pretty good one over the years, and we've been doing it for six years now. So what is our goal with Fast Talk? I think in a way, 
I just mentioned it. It's to bring science to the people. There aren't a lot of shows out there. There aren't a lot of resources that really dive deep into the science of sport, into the physiology. You get a lot of top-level stuff where it's do your intervals this way and 10 minutes at this power, but we tell you the why. And that's what we really want to do. We want to explain what's going on inside the body, sometimes to a cellular level, to help people understand what's going on. So that's that's what we try to do in Fast Talk. What I personally like about it is it's a lot of different views. It's a yes. lot of different avenues. So right. um, we can have coaches that have more of a sweet spot bent, coaches that have more of a high intensity bent and how you roll those things together and what you get out of it. And I remember the, the episode that Colby and I were on, it's like you bring in somebody like Colby who has this organic, bouldery view of the holistic. world. It's very holistic, but it's, I mean, it's very fantastic. I, I chuckled at him when he said something about the solstice and then found myself a week later writing somebody's program going, well, we're going to take a break around the solstice. Oh, damn it, Colby. <laughs> he wears off on you, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He does. It's pretty great. But but those different views are really fantastic. And, you know, my goal here has been this idea of we only have so much bandwidth for cycling and for sport. We mm-hmm. cover results. We cover races. And that stuff's great. Um, but... If it were football, we'd talk all about the X's and O's all day long or right, right. this guy's personal life all day long. And we just don't get that chance in cycling and endurance sports. And I think there's there's a big hopefully <laughs> hopefully there's a there's a want for it. Yeah. No, it's interesting because we have actually gotten some feedback from listeners saying well, I'm a little confused because this coach said this thing and this other coach said this other thing and and our approach is not necessarily to have a, a bias, a single bias. We are biased, but we also know that there are more than one, there's more than one way to skin the cat, as Trevor likes to say. There's just different philosophies. There's many highways to get to the same city. There's a lot of analogies you could, how you could express this. There's different ways to get to the same end point. And we want to present that information because we know some people have the time to take one approach. Some people have the limited time, and so they must take a different approach. We also know that these things are personal, and some people might get really bored if polarized is the plan that's driven home to them as the approach they must take, but they get really tired of those long, slow rides that they know might benefit them, but they just can't, you know, do it. So we present the breadth of information that's out there. That's our what we're attempting to do. Yeah. And I think a great example of that is you and I are similar in age. Mm-hmm. You and I are, in, for all intents and purposes, you're better, but we're similar in ability. Mm-hmm. I guarantee we don't train the same way. No, probably not. That's good. Most That's... of the time I would say I don't train. No, I'm... <laughs> I ride a bike. I'm with you right now. <laughs> My 15 minutes on the stair climber this morning was money. <laughs> Are you going to be on an elliptigo soon? <laughs> Dude, yeah, probably. We're getting the x My knees are hurting today. I'm <laughs> no. going out on the elliptigo. <laughs> Just push me over when you see that. I no, will. No Absolutely. To anybody who rides an elliptigo, usually there's a reason, but... Somebody push me over. I will. I yeah. will absolutely okay. push you into the trees. Hopefully into a pool because that's what I should well, be doing instead, yeah. right? Just a little bit of a background on you. Sure. I think that it's 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 pretty easy to get Trevor's background. He's a coach. Mm-hmm. He's very straightforward. You are geek nerd. Would you would you accept that as a positive? I always have described myself more as a dork. Honestly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah I can see that. <laughs> I'm looking at you right now. I have never studied physiology in a academic sense, but I was an athlete from the age of 10 on. And so I have absorbed a lot of information by being an athlete at different points in my life, in different sports in my life with different training methodologies or philosophies about how to train and a lot of different coaches primarily running when I was a kid um, for a long time uh, with lots of different coaches um, coaches that also trained Olympians 
and coaches that were high school coaches that didn't really know what the heck they were doing. They were just a, a guy, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I've, I've absorbed a lot over the years in that way. And then to, to, I was dorky because academically I was, uh, you know, just good in school and I went to a good college and I studied neuroscience and you got to be nerdy and dorky to, to even do all the classes that are required to get that degree at the school I went to. To spell neuroscience. To spell neuroscience, <laughs> yeah. You could call me a nerd, but it's all relative. To Trevor, I am not a nerd. <laughs> to fair. to other uh, people we have had on Fast Talk, our show, I'm not a nerd at all. Yeah. I'm I'm so off the back. Yeah. They're they yeah. are some of the smartest people in the world of physiology that we speak to, or whatever the the field. So I feel out of my element a lot of the times on the on that show speaking to the guests but put me back in my high school class and yeah i feel like a nerd a total nerd <laughs> I, I i hear what you're saying i was not that guy i used swimming to get into a pretty good school and then so everybody knows almost flunked out my freshman year because i had a lot of fun yeah i bet <laughs> yeah i did really well with some of that as as we were walking through campus my midterm my freshman year and I had, this is no joke, you can't make this up, a point one four four. Come on. <laughs> I had three Fs and a D minus midterm my freshman year. And I'm walking around campus with my parents. Yeah, your parents were proud. Oh, yeah, they were pumped. And I'm walking around campus with my parents. And uh, about 15 minutes, my mom looks at me and goes, well, you sure do know everybody. <laughs> It's like, thanks, mom. I found out what I'm good at. You were the mayor. You were the mayor of campus. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I, 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 I had a role. Let's just say I had yeah. a role. But I, I guess what I mean when I, when I talk about that, though, with you is that you approach things from a scientific mm -hmm. approach. I mean, your background's in science. Yes. In, in true scientific study. Yes. Yeah, I did clinical research for many years. First at the National Institute of Mental Health Clinical Brain Disorders branch, studying patients with schizophrenia. And it was a genetic study. I was doing a certain portion of that research when it came to eye tracking. And I won't even go into it because it's, uh, yeah, it's not that exciting, I guess. I but work, but I working with those patients was fascinating. And Again, being in the room with the psychiatrists and the researchers that I was working with, I was not the nerd in that room. Right. You know, these people were amazing and had 50 years of clinical experience working with schizophrenia and saw it from when it was this mental health disorder that was purely about the stigma of, oh, that person's crazy, right. to this time when I was working there where it was like, this was deep science. We were trying to crack the code on what the heck was going on, both from a chemical standpoint, a genetic standpoint, etc. So I was exposed to that. And then I went on to do research in a monkey model of Parkinson's disease. So we were doing stem cell innervation to portions of these the brains of these uh, African green monkeys that lived in a colony in the Caribbean. And and wait, to jump in, you, wait, no, no, this is in all seriousness, because I'm, I love this stuff. Yeah. But you were doing stem cell research in what year? 2002. Yeah, so that's a long time ago. That was cutting edge stuff. Yeah, yeah. We hear about stem cells now, and it's starting to become common vernacular, but mm -hmm. this was not common in right. the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. And very controversial. Yes, it was. So that, I mean, that's, that's where you came from. Mm -hmm. And when you enter sport or you even do sport from that approach, I'm going to guess you dove pretty deep in how you looked at how you trained or how you did it. And when did that start to change for you? So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, you grew up running since you were 10. Mm -hmm. You probably weren't sitting down studying physiology when you nope, were 10, nope. but because I remember this too. I went through a period of time and at a certain point I went, wait a second, I want to know what this means and I want to know why. Mm -hmm. When did that, that switch go for you? You know, it's funny you should ask that question because I don't know that there was ever a time when I sat down and said to myself, I really am curious about the cellular level here. Neuroscience degree and in undergraduate, I've been to a graduate program. I don't like school. <laughs> and I don't learn in traditional ways. Yeah, I hear that. So 
sitting down and reading books about subjects is is what I used to do to learn stuff, but it wasn't the best way for me. I I absorb things in different ways. So again, it's through experience, through listening to people. Um, the most I've learned about physiology is definitely over the last six years working with Trevor because it's conversational and it's applicable at the same time. Uh, so yeah, I think you bring up a really good question, but my answer might be a little disappointing in that I never sat down when I was racing at my best and thought long and hard about what was happening in that that uh, pure scientific way, honestly. Yeah. I am an athlete of instinct a lot of the time. I have only used all the tools available to a elite athlete for a single season in my entire life. That was two years ago when I was like, I want to win nationals. Trevor, will you help me? And he said, yes, you've got it, but I need you to use a power meter and a heart rate strap. I did that for that season and got all the data he wanted. And since then, I've never turned on my power meter again, and I don't wear a heart rate monitor. And everything I do, I'm like, this is going to sound very egotistical, but I love the way Ned Overend has trained throughout his life, which is... I know myself better than any coach ever could. And he can do this. This isn't the approach that every athlete right, should take. Absolutely. It's totally opposite of what a lot of athletes need. But for me, it's I know what I need. I've worked with a coach, and yeah, that might get another 10% out of me. But if I did that all the time, it would take a lot of the fun out of it for me. As well, well, and it did two years ago. I mean, I, rem- yeah. I remember that vividly. I mean, that, that, that race, were we teammates at the time? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. so. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember that race and I, you know, like I said, our families are close and Chris and I are close. And I remember watching that race, wanting that win for you. And and you, you frankly didn't look like yourself. I was flailing out there. Yeah. You didn't look relaxed. A newborn deer. I don't know if I'd go newborn deer on (laughs) ice. I don't think it was Bambi on ice. Well, you know, that's what I was feeling versus, versus my expectations for the day and what I was putting out, that's how I felt. But I, I realize it probably didn't look that bad. No, but it, it wasn't instinctive. It wasn't what you're you're used to. And and this comes back to to again, if we want to compare you and I, similar age, similar ability, totally different approach. Mm-hmm. You are very instinctual. Turn the brain off. Just go race. I have to talk myself through every aspect of it in a positive manner. Mm-hmm. And if I can't. Then if I go purely on instinct, I get too excited and I look like Bambi on ice, <laughs> which happens a lot if so, anybody's watched me race cross. So you're saying you do a lot of self-talk before races to calm yourself down. I actually do a lot of self-talk before races to have more fun. Okay. So basically what I've found over the years is that what works for me is that I really enjoy being around the people that I get to race with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And full disclosure, I do learn by reading. I okay. read yeah. everything I can get my hands on. And, and people have asked me a lot as a coach, what do you read? What are the books you read? And I read a lot on um, just human psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that what our brain's doing and how our brain's thinking probably has as much or biggest role of what we can do with our body at any time. Yeah. And, and so I spent a lot of time, you know, I would picture myself at the start of a race or I'd get to the start of the race. And I think this is really left over from swimming. Mm-hmm. It's so individual in swimming. Right. And it doesn't even matter the people around you. What's the time? What's the time? What's the time? And I get there's some of that in track. But even when you go into something like a 10K or cross country, that goes away mm-hmm. because the course, the conditions, all those things can have an effect. Right. 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 Swimming, it's sterile. You know, it's six feet wide in the pool and yeah. it's water, you go. It stay in your lane. Yeah. That, that lane is the yeah. the silo yeah. that you're living in. And and it and so you always have a chance to measure yourself. And so getting really caught up in the results for me mm. became everything. Mm-hmm. So as I moved from swimming to triathlon, I carried a lot of that in triathlon. And it was a struggle. And I didn't last very long in triathlon because of that. I uh, got, I would get good and then stress out. So I spent a lot of time over the last couple of years kind of talking myself into the experience of racing. So one little trick, and I do this a lot, is 
picture the race beforehand. Mm-hmm. Let the butterflies come. Let the mm-hmm. adrenaline come. Yep. Because everybody goes, oh, that's nerves. And, and, and in reality, it's adrenaline, mm-hmm. right? That's a good thing. Yeah, yep. you so need I, that. I let that flood me. And then I think about something that makes me laugh. Mm. And almost inevitably, that's the people I race against. It's somebody like you or... You laugh at me? With you. <laughs> oh, with, with me. With, okay, good. With. Good. <laughs> it's usually turning around and seeing you at the back of the start line because you have no points. <laughs> And going, I wonder when he's going to pass me. It's the every other season approach. You know? I, I do. I'm kind of into that now. But but it's like you or somebody like Greg Keller or Michael Robson or, or Brandon Dwight. These people we've raced against for ages that I really enjoy as people. So I get a laugh or I get a smile. And that starts to equate that adrenaline with something happy versus that adrenaline being equated to stress. There's a, that, that's cool to, to have you walk through your process because everybody, I think, could benefit from having a process, but it doesn't have to be at all like your process. Absolutely. And I, that's, that's kind of my point, right? Yeah. So everybody's different. And, you know, I was, I was at this uh, Tier Pro Series swim meet last weekend. So this is the very, very best in the country, Olympic year. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was the very, very best from Canada. Denmark was there. Mm. I mean, this was this is one of those races. And I happened to be walking by and a, and a girl, I think she's a woman, she swims for Tennessee, she's post-grad. She said, yeah, it's like, you know, 50% anxiety, 20% anger. And she was kind of going through what she felt at the start line. Right, right. And I, it, was, it was brilliant. It was this beautiful thing to hear in my mind. It's like, how does this person at this level put that all together Mm -hmm. you know for me it's a little bit anxiety a whole lot of joy when i race my best a whole lot of joy and then you know these other things it's almost never anger Mm. you know when i race with anger i make mistakes Mm -hmm. and i had a very similar experience in reno for me it was hey you just turned 45 this is your year you won against all these guys and two days before the race one of my good friends you know if anybody likes cyclocross is listening somebody named paul bonds who's mm-hmm. a character yes. in cyclocross <laughs> came walking up and goes grant you're gonna win this thing <laughs> and is and as only Polly bonds can say and i was like i think i puckered up in that moment and never really let go and made mistakes and you know roll the tire because I borrowed somebody else's tires because they were going to be better for that day, even though I had raised this the whole season. You know, it's nuts how easy you can get out of that. Yeah. You take this background though, right? And it's as a research scientist. Yep. How does that start to transition into what you do now as a bike racer, as a journalist, as mm-hmm. all of those things? Like how did that happen? Because that's a that's a broad leap. Well, here's here's something to chew on. I was extremely shy as a kid. This is where my dork label probably came from, for myself or from others. I would observe. That was me. Lean against the wall, look at the world go by, see what everybody's doing. Isn't that science? Yeah. Observation? Yeah, absolutely. Step one, right? Isn't that journalism? You have to observe a lot to be a good journalist. You have to talk to a lot of people too, which I've overcome my shyness and can now talk to people sometimes. (laughs) But I don't think that it's as big a stretch as a lot of people might think because at its core, there are some uh, really big similarities between the two worlds and it comes back to observation. And one of my favorite things to do is to sit back and observe and interpret behavior and analyze people's behavior and attitudes and the things that they say and all of that and and synthesize that into to whatever is applicable in that moment or that context. So, uh yeah, that that it goes all the way back to childhood and being shy and uh, I have sought out ways in which to do that it just so happens that at times it was uh, working with uh, patients with schizophrenia and then it's working with athletes or being in the cycling world and uh, practicing journalism in that way so 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Do you do that in sport? Do you find yourself doing that with something like when you came into cyclocross? Did you take a step back, observe, observe, observe? And second piece to that, do you do that with your competitors? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, lucky enough to be in a place where some of the best amateur racers in the world live with Pete Weber and Brandon, people that have been racing for a super long time. And I was their teammate for years. I've been your teammate. I've been a lot of, we live in a, 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 you know, I hate when people rag on Boulder because of the reputation it has, but it has, it's some, sometimes it's, it's rightfully so. But in any case, uh, there are a lot of amazing athletes here that put a lot of time and effort into being as good as they are. And they also take a lot of time and effort into helping others be their best. Yeah, I think that's a really important piece of Boulder that people don't necessarily understand how much time people put into other people. Yeah, yeah. And I've been at, I've had the luxury, I've been lucky enough to be on teams with these guys and women like Kristen Weber, who all of the, we learn from all of these, or I, this is what I do. I observe what other athletes, good athletes do. And I pick up, that's goes back to how I learn. It's not from reading a book on Tim Johnson's book on cyclocross technique. I don't, I'm not going to get anything out of that. I'm going to watch people. I'm going to put it into practice. I'm going to watch people. I'm going to do it again. That's how I learn. And, you know, we used to have something exquisite called Wednesday worlds where we would go out and we would, crush each other, but we were also observing everybody and learning from that process and watching Weber corner the yeah. Webers, you know, yeah. Pete Weber and Kristen Weber yeah. and watching everybody do these things and watching how they handled themselves, seeing how hard they went, seeing how hard they didn't go that day, etc. So all of this applies to my place as an athlete as well. And it's, you know, Let's not carry get carried away. I'm still an amateur, and I have sure, always been an amateur. Sure. But w- people get devoted to things, whether it's stamp collecting or riding their bike. And it's awesome when people have a passion for something. So we don't take it too seriously. We just take it seriously, Yeah. right? Yeah. And that's great. And I think so. And I think that's a really good point. You can take it seriously yourself, and you want it to be a part of your life. It gets a little dangerous as an amateur and even as a pro, in my opinion. It's all consuming. Right. When it's the only aspect of yeah, your life, when you're right. defined by your sport. Yeah. And that's a conversation I have a lot with young riders and young swimmers. Do not let your performance define who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And, I think, and I've, I've made that mistake. Oh, I think everybody has. And, and honest to God, you can't teach that unless you've made that mistake. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think, well, this is, this is kind of a nice segue to family and, mm-hmm. and family life. And, and, you know, this is one really important question I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Your daughter mm-hmm. is a beautiful young woman. Yes. Were you involved in that? <laughs> I think so. Oh, At least once. Because <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, both of us married up. Well, you've seen you've seen my parents. You've seen Jess. It skipped a generation, and with her genes, you know, it just all worked out somehow. Right, right. the miracle of life. Yeah, both of us uh, definitely punching above our weight. Yeah, and the uh, the those 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 children. I mean, if if let's keep them apart for as long yeah, as possible. Yeah, that really would be a good idea. You balance all of this stuff, and I think it's important. And you know, we'll have these conversations, and I've had these conversations with professional riders. How do you balance those things? But you know, a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this are amateur riders. They yes. are masters riders. So, what are the keys and what are the pieces for you that are really important in balancing that family life, which is incredibly important to you? I know that. Yes. And and racing, which can be important to you at times as well, because yeah. I've watched that right. be important to you right. at times. I or think, just being on your bike. Yeah, I think it, uh, for me, it, it, it comes down to a single thing, and that's communication. You have to talk about these things. Um, it, I have the, again, I'm, I'm lucky, or I have the luxury of being married to someone who also loves riding bikes, running, being fit, being active, racing, all of those things. And so she understands what it means 
um, to enjoy those things. So I sit down, we talk about, oh, are we going to race this weekend? Are we not going to race this weekend? You want to run? Okay, I'll watch Annika for a little bit. You can go for a run because you don't, we, we don't always want to just throw Annika into daycare or right. get the babysitter to go do stuff together, Jess and I, my wife and I. So we just are constantly talking about it, constantly sort of making assessment of who needs what. Sometimes I, I'm like, I don't need to run or ride at all this weekend. I want to just hang out with Annika. Or, you know, please, can we all just three hang out right. together, yeah. you know? Yeah, that, Which, that can be a chore sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, not not the hanging out, the finding the, 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 the finding time. The finding the time yeah. and the planning of it all. So we're just, it, it, it really just comes down to communication. And rolled into communication is respect. Mm-hmm. You have to respect the, the needs and desires of your wife and your child uh, to understand how to rearrange things and be flexible about what people need at different times. You just, sometimes I walk in the door and I can tell, okay, I'm, she's tagging out immediately. Give me, yeah. give me, give me, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And other times I come home and I'm like, I've been dealing with Trevor all day long and I have had enough. <laughs> or I've been podcasting all day with Grant and Colby and I have had enough. And so Jess can see that in my eyes and she's like, all right, I can go a couple more hours or whatever. So it's, it's sometimes it's verbal communication. Sometimes it's nonverbal communication. The struggle for us is finding the time to do stuff together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we have the time we're doing something with the kids or the time that we're four of us doing something together, or she has the kids or I have the kids or we're both working. And we have this challenge that we both work from home. Mm. So we see each other all the time. Right. But we never really hang out with each other. Yeah, yeah. So, so that I think that becomes a real challenge too, and it's it it helps when you both ride bikes. Yes, right. But it can't just be that. At least for us, it can't just be that. Yeah, and I think you know the, this goes back to my point about communication. If you don't have a spouse that isn't into the same activity that you are into. Uh, communication is perhaps even more important because yeah. then you have to say, okay, now's your time to ride because I know you love it and mm-hmm. you should respect that. And now's your time to go do X, whatever X is. It could be shopping. It could be right. whatever you yeah. enjoy doing. I, You know, you got to be flexible about that and respect others' wishes. And I don't, I'm not, I don't need to lecture people, but I think it just comes down to being a, a, a great communicator about these things and being willing to expose yourself in terms of what you need and what you want. Yeah. That relationship advice brought to you by Chris Case <laughs> and Fast Dog. Turning turning the corner and changing yeah. the subject a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about journalism. Sure. But I, I do want to take a good bit of time and talk about your book. The impetus for that book was my friendship with Leonard Zinn. And it came down to Leonard Zinn walking into the Vela News office one day and describing this somewhat horrific incident that he had experienced. He was riding up Flagstaff, which is a famous mountain in Boulder where we've all ridden and we, we ride up it to gauge our level of fitness at any given point in the year. And he was going hard. Leonard's, uh, at that time, he was 55 years old, but he was a really good racer. I mean, he's a former Olympic-level racer, so he's got talent. But he was, you know, 55, and he's still getting out there, on, and he loved cyclocross, and this was, he was gearing up for, this was the, oh, so this was 2013, the year nationals were going to be in Boulder. In Boulder, right. So, but he had that, he was going hard, and he, <laughs> as he describes it, he was trying to set a new 55-plus Strava KOM on Flagstaff. And his heart started doing, or his Garmin said his heart rate was super high, but he didn't necessarily believe it. He starts tapping the, the head unit. Come on, you know, sometimes they go crazy. Sometimes the heart rate strap's not reading well. It didn't go down. So he backs off, and it immediately drops. And of course, being the competitive guy that he is, as he tells the story, he's like, God damn it, I was on a really good time. Now I've blown it. <laughs> so, but he, and then he goes and he, he does other efforts on Flagstaff and Sunshine Canyon, another big climb in the area, because that was the workout for the day. 
He goes home, he's a smart guy, he, he's a cautious guy. He thinks to himself, well, that was kind of weird. I better just call my GP and tell them what's up. Calls that person, and his doctor says, you need to go to the emergency room immediately and don't have, you don't drive yourself, have your wife take you. And he's like, are you kidding me? And from there, it, I mean, he, he does not have resolution to this day. He knows what his condition is, but he still has it. He has an arrhythmia. So The Haywire Heart is a book all about heart arrhythmias. And the, the context is, can heart arrhythmias be generated, be elicited by too much work as an athlete, as an endurance athlete, as any type of athlete. So I wrote an article for Velo News Magazine about it, and then Velo Press approached me about writing the book. And so we Leonard and I teamed up with a really good electrophysiologist, cardiologist from Louisville, Kentucky, who also has is a bike racer, knows hearts, has an arrhythmia, and writes frequently and has a really good blog. Dr. John M., I believe is the name of it, uh, is the name of his website, about arrhythmias in athletes. And so the three of us teamed up and wrote this book. Let me ask you this. I'm sure as you started this, it was it was a piece that was something that was interesting. Yeah. And you were curious about. Yes. My guess is, and actually it's a little bit better than a guess, but how many stories of this come out of the woodwork now oh. that you've written the book? Well, that was the thing. Once Leonard realized what was going on with him, he started reaching out to all of his old friends and former teammates from, I guess that would have been 30 years before when he was on the Olympic team. He didn't go to the Olympics because that was the year the U.S. team boycotted the Olympics, unfortunately for him. Um, so many of his friends, former teammates, uh, rivals, he started to learn, had things going on with his with their hearts as well and not at an age when you would expect them to be having them so that's where it started to gain momentum like this is not just an isolated incident with with Leonard this is something that needs more investigation and that's what we did and then once we published the article because Leonard has such a big following and he's been doing this tech column for Vel News for so long, people started reaching out to him through that avenue to address questions with their hearts. Hunt, literally hundreds, and probably at this point, thousands of people have reached out to Leonard directly, to me as well, but more so to Leonard because he has the following. And he's the, he's the patient, the, the three of us that right. wrote it. He's right. the one that has lived this. And so people get scared when their hearts start doing freaky things. Mm -hmm. And he is a really patient and generous guy and he would have long email conversations or phone conversations with people about what was going on with them. It could be this, it could be this. I'm not a doctor though. You should go do this right, and you should go right. do this and don't overreact to this. And, you know, he just sort of walking them back off the, the side of this cliff, this precipice that they thought they were on because until you've experienced something with your heart, you don't realize how scary it's going to be. Oh, your heart works so damn hard yeah. all the time. And then when you're an athlete, you wouldn't believe how hard it's working. But then when it starts to act funny, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Yeah. Instantly, that's your thought. Yeah. Because we've all had or heard of really tragic stories of athletes that have probably died from sudden cardi cardiac death or some of these other things. And it's, it's chilling to think it, about. It, well, it, it is. I, I, I can only imagine what a calming force Leonard is mm -hmm. for these people. I mean, it, if, if you're fortunate enough to know Leonard, there's that personality is there. Yeah. He's and a kind soul. He, is he really is, is in, in, in many, many ways. But yeah, that, that feeling's terrifying. And then there's that added feeling of, well, I got to lose the thing that I do that gives me purpose or gives me direction or keeps me healthy. You know, that contradiction between this thing that allows me to be healthy could be hurting me. Yeah. 
Right. That that's the thing about this book too. There's a few things I want to point out. The the book I hate the subtitle. I didn't write the subtitle. We won't even read it on the air. Okay. But it's not a book that's meant to scare anybody into not exercising. This is about education first and foremost. If this happens to you, don't freak out necessarily because and then read the book sort of thing. Like right. there's a lot to know here before you should be freaking out. There are certain things that if they are happening to you, you should immediately go to a doctor and we address those in the book. Hmm. We address the science of could it be that if you uh, have been an endurance athlete for 30 years, ha- have you maybe done some damage to your heart? We address that science. Some people would say, nah, you can't really make that conclusion. We tend to believe that you can start to make draw some conclusions or there's at least patterns to be observed there. We're not definitive at all in the book. It's it's an exploration. It's the first time anybody's written right. a book about this. What I will also say though is the journey I've seen Leonard take over the years uh it's it's that classic journey at first, it was pure denial. No, this ain't me. Couldn't possibly be me. There's nothing wrong with me. The doctor says there's something wrong. There ain't. I'm going to go back to training. And he tried that for a while. And then his heart started flopping in his chest like a fish, as he would put it. And it really freaked him out. And and then he had that that moment where he said to himself, what am I doing? Right. I'm an amateur athlete that's gearing up for a big race, but am I about to kill myself in the process? I need to stop doing this. This isn't very smart. And then I saw him go through the, oh man, cycling is my life. You're telling me I can't do it anymore? And he got depressed. Not surprisingly. I mean, for a lot of us, he took away the bike, okay, maybe we start to run but if you can't do any physical activity it's a huge loss it's a it creates a huge void in our lives and i saw that with him and then it went to acceptance you know the other classic stages of acceptance and then giving back and wanting Mm. to help others and and then you know he's a scientist too right through and through and this inquisitive nature of him just trying to learn more and more and more so that he could be more educated when people approached him about what is going on. So he's a resource at this point about these, unlike a lot of doctors that aren't very familiar with the athlete heart. To me as a coach and to me as somebody who studies, and I really do, studies the training methods of old. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of curiosity in me about what this can start. You know, yeah. what what training regimen benefits this? What training regimen could lead to this or exacerbates this problem? And I think the answers are going to surprise people because they're going to be a little contradictory. They're not going to be as as flowy as maybe we think they should be. Mm-hmm. Hey, don't go super hard if you have this problem when it's hard. You know, I encourage I'm 46. My wife in the last couple of years, who's nine years younger than me, I don't know what she was thinking. (laughs) When you start to get to be upper 40s, 50 years old, you're still racing hard. You're still doing those things. My wife turns to me and goes, I want you to go get checked out Mm -hmm. just because I want you to go get checked out. And I don't necessarily have any symptoms or anything. Right. But then that statement in concert with all the research that tells us as we get older, we must stay doing intense short interval exercise in order to keep our hearts healthy, keep our bodies healthy. Mm -hmm. These things, as they come together, you need the whole picture and you need all of that information. So just real quick, what's what's the piece of advice, not as a doctor, but as somebody who's spent a lot of time with this, as people start to get into their late 40s, or maybe it's earlier than that, what's your advice to uh, an aging athlete? As you were describing that, I was thinking about those people that are probably like, I don't really need to read that book. I think the underlying message to it all is you need to rest harder than you do right now. Probably some people get that, but a lot of people don't balance the rest with the with the training or the stress load. 
There's training stress, there's life stress, there's other stresses. Maybe you're going through a divorce. Maybe your work is super stressful. Maybe there's a lot of travel for work. Maybe you have two young kids. Maybe you have two young (laughs) kids that are totally spastic and weird. Um, All of... (laughs) I used to sign the book, Train Hard, Rest Harder, Chris Case. Like, that was my take-home message. If you could encapsulate that book, there's so much more in it than that. But... A lot of people are overtrained. The majority of people are overtrained. Can we say that? Yeah, I think yeah. we can say that. I think we could go so far as to say that the majority of casual athletes, not even competitors, are borderline overtired. Yeah. Right. A lot of the time. Because they're not taking into account, well, they're training wrong, but then they're not also taking into account all the other stuff that adds into life. their life or into the stress stress load. Meaning life is not taken into account when they're accounting for that cumulative stress load. Well, and and those stressors come from a million different places. And right. I, I've sent... They're hard to identify sometimes. Oh, yeah. You know, I've sent pro athletes to races and they have these long transfers that they, you know, they're flying to Argentina to start the season here in a couple of days. And they want to train really hard till the day they leave, yeah, right. right? And, oh, I'm going to get two days of rest on the plane. I'm like, you think that's freaking rest? This is exactly what we just spoke about on Fast Talk with Brent Bookwalter. Yeah. You know, you, you cannot train up to the day before you leave and then get on a germ tube for 15 <laughs> hours and expose yourself when your immune system is compromised because you just punished yourself and expect to come out the other side in good form. And, and that's for professional athlete. We right, start talking right. about an amateur athlete or a master's athlete. And, and you and I have spoken about this on Fast Talk, and I'm sure we will again. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that that is a tenant of what I preach. Rest, 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 rest. Yeah, yeah. We're master's athletes. Let's, let's say 90% of the events we do are going to be 45 minutes to an hour long. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk about overall needed endurance fitness for that, guys? Right. We probably don't need that much, but you're always better off taking a day off. Yeah. Always. So and that, that's one of the things I, I learned from reading that book, or sorry, writing that book, but also reading it and digesting all of that information. People say, you know, did you, do you ride your bike anymore after riding? Of course I do. Yeah. Do you train any differently? Well, yeah, I think I do. I rest more. I, I don't freak out when I miss a day. Yeah. I don't freak out if I get a, a, a cold. I take some days off and yeah. let my body recover the way it should rather than trying to like, no, oh, I'm going to ride, but I'm going to ride really gently or yeah. I'm just going to try to push through this or, or whatever. No, just just step back from a second for a second and, and rest. Rest is really good training. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? it's really good training. And and again, back to your first point with this whole thing, how much work your heart does, yeah. right? When you're sick, 10 beats higher of a heart rate all day, yeah. the whole time you're sick. Yeah. Start counting those heartbeats, yeah. guys, yeah. right? And so why give it more? We got some formulas in there of the amount of blood that your body pumps through or your heart pumps through your body over the light over its lifetime and it's nuts. It's insane. What does rest mean? Well, to me rest does not mean riding your bike really easily or going for a run or going for a hike if you're a cyclist. Rest to me means kicking your feet up. Pure and simple and drinking a glass of iced tea on the porch, whatever, you yeah. know, like it's truly rest. It's it's pros that get it, get it. They won't even walk up a flight of stairs. Right, right. When, no? you can, when you can sit, don't stand. When that's, you can lay down, don't sit. Right, right. exactly. That's the, that's the philosophy to take. Now, that's not so easy to accomplish if you're a dad or, or whatever. One of my favorite things that I, I have a conversation with somebody and it happens all the time. You see, I see it in training peaks of sitting down and we're getting ready to write a week of workouts. And it's Martin Luther King Day. Everybody, not everybody, but half my master's athletes, I have the day off, can ride all day. Right. Right. <laughs> and what's screaming in my head is you have the day off, don't do it darn thing Mm -hmm. like you want to look for the days when you have nothing else to do to be a true rest day yeah it's a hard sell like i'd love to have people rest on sundays but 
yeah, time's an issue. And they're it's very not biblical gonna, of you. Yeah. <laughs> or Saturday. Yeah, um, I guess. And, and I think, you know, but that's a hard sell. You're not going to do that. You know, most people have an hour, hour and a half of the day of the week, and then they have two, two and a half, three on the weekend. So, yeah, yeah go take advantage of that. But a day like Christmas, you know, or a day like Thanksgiving or Martin Luther King Day or any of these days where you happen to not have work, you don't have anything to do. Don't do anything. Relax. Stop. Let it go. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's like that piece of it that says, I think you just, I think you, you also have to see it not as I'm going to hit the pause button because I need to recover. You mentioned it. You need to stop because it's going to make you better. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, absolutely. That's what this all comes down to is not not even really being healthier. That's that's one way of selling it, but I think a better way to sell it is you're going to be a better performer if you take this approach, yeah, <laughs> you know? You, 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 I mean, the, in the physiology and the science is there. You respond and get stronger. Yes. And you're a heck of a lot nicer person to be around. <laughs> I mean, you, when you're not training at all, you're joyful. Just think about, just think about those people that are overworked from their jobs. Oh, They're grumpy. Happiest thing in here. <laughs> I have one more question for yes, you. Yes, hit it's, me. It's very close to my heart, um, and and I I'm dying to know this. Yeah. How did you live in Hamilton, New York, <laughs> for four winters? <laughs> Because I grew up in Utica, New York. Yeah. And I spent 14 years there where the sun goes away mm. in October and it comes back in April. Yep. It's a, it's a, so Hamilton, New York is the town where Colgate University is located. That's where I went to college. This is, this is what you're speaking of. I'll, I, I'll got, I've got two stories for you. The night before the, Second semester started my freshman year. So Colgate had a ski hill on its campus. It It was closed down. I had a good group of friends. We had a giant plastic foldable (laughs) toboggan that somebody found. We took it to the giant ski hill. The day had been warm. The night was very cold. There was a crust of ice over the top. Perfect. We got on the sled, all five of us, me, Andy Muck, Emma, who was like 6'3". She was a, yeah, tall woman. Susie Sue, who was like 4'2", so they <laughs> balanced each other out. Anyways, five of us, we get on the, the, the toboggan and it would immediately crack through the ice and we wouldn't go anywhere. <laughs> We'd start to shimmy, we start to shimmy. Nothing. So I got the sled and I ran up the hill to the top and I put it on the ice and I let it go and it started to, to crest over the top and picked up speed and I ran after it and jumped on it like Superman. And you were all and of I was 100. all of seventy seven pounds at that time. <laughs> so I floated above on top of this crust of ice all the way down. I was going incredibly fast, probably like. 15 miles per hour, but it felt like <laughs> yeah, 85. I'm going to guess you were faster than 15. A, a, yeah. And you get to the bottom of the hill, and there just happened to be the the area where people had walked, and there was a, so there was this dr- trench, and the front of the sled went into the trench, and the for, my forehead went right into the shelf of ice. And I did a flip over my head, and I immediately took my gloves and put them on my forehead and i thought oh my god i don't want to ever let go of my head because my brain's just gonna fall out (laughs) and i did and my palms were the snow on my palms were totally right red right i was bleeding profusely out of my forehead again this is the night before the second semester started so i needed to go to classes with new professors and oh yeah you had to look good yeah and i looked like freddy (laughs) krueger had just peeled tried to peel my my skull open so that's one thing we did to enjoy the winters did you visit the uh emergency room right there in hamilton it was immediately across the road yeah i did not no i went back to my dorm room oh good saw my girlfriend at that time and she found a bunch of big band-aids for me guess what those band-aids were they were soccer balls (laughs) and eight balls and they were they weren't just band-aids they had like 
They were yeah. just kind that kind of look like stickers. Yeah. So for that night, I had an eight ball. That is fantastic. <laughs> That's perfect. We're going to relive that at some point. That was an amazing night. One of the games we used to play in Utica is we would wait on a street corner and the streets were almost always snow mm-hmm. covered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'd wait on the street corner until a car stopped at the stop sign and then you'd get behind the car, hold on to the back and of the bumper slide. and just <laughs> sit on your feet and ride the car <laughs> sliding across the, uh, the yeah, streets. Yeah. The other fond memory I have of shenanigans in Hamilton... My best friend, well, there's two. One time I challenged him to a mile run. I hadn't run and I, after I finished high school, you know, I had been recruited and all this stuff. I was burnt out at that point in my life on running. I said, no more. So we get to college. I hadn't run in quite a while. And I said, Andy, do you want to challenge me? I'll give you a lap head start in the mile, but we have to do it barefoot. And I hadn't hadn't run, first of all. And then I don't know if anybody out there has ever just tried running barefoot. Anyways, we couldn't walk. It was just one of those crazy, stupid (laughs) things that you do in college. But who won? I did. Oh, okay. I caught caught him and passed him. (laughs) Did you do it on the track? Yeah, we did it on a track. What'd you run? Come on, you know. Oh, no way. No, I don't remember that day. I don't remember that day. The, the, The story I was actually going to tell about, this is a potentially a better story anyways one time uh, i went out on a bike with andy on his rollerblades this was back in the day when people (laughs) still rollerbladed okay and we went down the country roads and 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 andy grew up on a farm in upstate new york near near out near buffalo and he was a farmer, and we were just looking at corn. And we were, you know, there's nothing to cows. There's more there's cows. Out there's there, more man. cows in that county than there are human beings. By a lot. By a lot. And I saw a really cool sign. You know how on farmer signs they'll put the 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 sign that will describe the type of corn yeah. breed or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Decob, uh, yeah. variety, whatever. Well, the decob uh logo if anybody's familiar with is a corn piece of corn yeah. with wings yeah and i great. thought that's really cool i want that for my dorm room okay so i took it off the side of the road and then we started heading back towards the college and this isn't gonna end well no it doesn't end well <laughs> it ends it ends by a farmer who probably saw me steal his precious sign from his crops and needed that sign to know how to water it or whatever, came up in his minivan blowing his horn, (laughs) and he drove us off into the ditch. I crashed my bike. This is one of the biggest crashes of my cycling career. And Andy, being a really good, devout Christian, sat in the ditch because the guy was holding the sign. He sat 100 yards in front of us in the ditch praying for my life. Nice. As this farmer accosted oh, me. That's good. And, it, and and took the sign out of my hands and just belittled me on the side of the road as I was laying in the ditch. <laughs> so these are some other things that I did in Hamilton, New York yeah. to entertain myself. Well, I think <laughs> if anybody has not been to upstate New York, I think one of the most important things to realize about this is where I grew up, where you went to college. Yeah. Uh, I went to school in the South, and my favorite, one of my favorite kind of stories or re- remembrances of it, of it was I had a friend who said, you know what the best thing, and he was kind of in my face about, you know, this is what's great about the South. <laughs> I had a lot of that, being the New Yorker at Washington and Lee University, mm. um, but he was in my face about it, and he was like, what I love about the South is I can get in my car, and I can drive 15 minutes, and I'm on a farm. You people from up there, you don't know what that's like. I was like, where do you think I'm from? Well, you're from New York. I said, buddy, I can walk out my back door, walk for 15 minutes, and I'm on a farm. Yeah, yeah. There is nothing. There's nothing there. I mean, it's beautiful in a lot of ways. Between the cities, there's nothing there. Yeah. There's a lot of cows. Yes, there are. (laughs) A lot lot of cows. cows. So we'll get into it in some episode. We can talk about cow tipping because (laughs) that happened. Nice. Uh, yeah yeah we'll get into it but chris thanks so much for coming along thanks for welcome. being here uh thanks for being my boss 
You're very welcome about and, that. Uh, and, and I hope I'm a good boss uh, well, so far. So far, uh, it's been like two weeks. You're <laughs> freaking fantastic. Great. Man. Great Best boss I've ever had. Awesome. Wow, thank you. Yeah, don't screw it up. I will try not to. <laughs> right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. And uh, thanks for everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. That's it, everybody. Another big thanks to Chris for joining me this week on the show. We'll be back next week with another fresh episode of Off Course. Coming soon on the pod are Phenom, Courtney McFadden, Master Brewer, Emerson Arante, and the infamous Max Chance. Get in touch. You can email me at offcourse at fastlabs.com. That's offcourse at fastlabs.com. Or follow me on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, it's at Grant Holicky, And on Instagram, it's at G Holicky. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Off Course are those of the individual and not of Fast Labs. Remember to subscribe to Off Course wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show on iTunes.